Hello and welcome to a Thursday episode of the State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Rapay. He's Chris Danzial. And somehow, someway, it was not an easy game to watch. It was very stressful. I probably aged four or five years from watching last night's game. But the Villanova Wildcats were able to walk out of Newark, leaving that Prudential Center with a win in overtime, just surviving, hanging on there with a 69-68 to victory over the Pirates. And I'll be honest with you, even though we won, I don't even know how I feel about that game. I think I'm still processing the feelings and the frustration that I endured for maybe about 42 of the 45 minutes of that game. Yeah, it, it was certainly stressful, and it was really, really ugly. It seemed like every possession was just non-flowing. Everyone just wanted to do something by themselves, and it would, la- it would lead to bad shot selections, and and then they would miss the shots. And then on the other end, Seton Hall was just as incompetent, and that was pretty much the game for about, what would you say, like 30, 35 minutes, and then it started to pick up a little bit. Seton Hall was hitting some threes. Miles Powell started to catch a little bit of fire. And Villanova had built up a, it was an 11-point lead, let it slip. Seton Hall had a chance to basically win the game at the end with two free throws from Carrington. He missed the first of two. Then Villanova had a chance to win the game with the game tied, and they I, I don't know if it was just the bad execution or if that was the actual play but it led to a Dante deep three, and I have no idea what the heck was that was about. That was a terrible shot. And, yeah, Villanova was able to be victorious in overtime after a near collapse there as well because, God forbid, we ever learn how to inbound the ball. But at the same time, like you're happy they won, but you have more questions about this team after this game. There were certainly a lot of head-scratching plays and decisions towards the end of that game. I don't even know where to begin to unpack because for about, I would say maybe 36 minutes, no one except for Mikael Bridges showed up to play the game. And I'll give props to Mari Spellman for his defense of Delgado. He was fantastic. Angel Delgado was just nowhere to be found, was only two for seven for the whole game, had seven points, eight boards, was really a non-factor. And we were talking about how this matchup was going to be interesting. And once again, the rookie taking it to the senior. Spellman, although he didn't light it up like he did in their previous matchup, he did have six points, 14 boards, and did a great job on Delgado. But overall, between Phil Booth going ice cold, Dante DiVincenzo having, I don't even know if his head was there. I don't know what <laughs> what was going on in between the ears, but he just was not on at all at any point in the game. He had five of the team's 11 turnovers, was one for nine on the floor. That last three was a head scratcher, but then I, I would say once we had some inbounding issues in overtime, especially, I was starting to get a little frustrated and was wondering why wasn't Con Gillespie playing more because he only logged 10 minutes while Dante DiVincenzo finishes with 28. And I don't think DiVincenzo provided some quality minutes as a technically the sixth man or the sixth starter, whatever they want to call him. So I would have probably loved Gillespie. I probably would have pulled DiVincenzo at some point to put Gillespie out on there. And Jalen Brunson, he was not on. You have to give props to the Pirates for how they locked him down for maybe 35 minutes because he started out the game shooting one for nine. 
But then he goes five for six the rest of the way and was really big, especially in the overtime period, to give Villanova the lead and then help them pull away. But that man looked so mortal for a while, and I was wondering if he was ever able to get out of it. Hopefully that that five for six little spurt to close out the game helps him shake off that slump. But he did not look good. Eric Pascal, I felt like he didn't really get that many touches on offense. He was only two for six on the floor. Really, the big men were just not that used. I don't know if it's because of Delgado being there, whether or not they didn't want to go that route. But I just felt like they looked a little lost, and they looked like they weren't able to break the Seton Hall defense until basically the very end. Yeah, pretty much. And I think a lot just stems from just the bad offensive flow they've they've had. It seems that they do a lot of pick the ball up, like handoff, and then just shoot a three. And, you know, it's been working for most of the year. But when the shots aren't falling, like let's let's adjust a little bit. I would have loved to have seen Pascal got more more touches. He he's been driving with the best of them lately. I think his dribble drives to the basket have been absolutely fantastic. They were great against Creighton and they didn't utilize it that much. They did in overtime against Creighton a little bit, but he missed like one layup and then they just completely abandoned it. But this game, I guess you're right. I guess it was Delgado's presence, but you could have tried it a little bit more. Adjust. This was like the St. John's game where the three-point shooting was horrendous. 8 of 36 from deep. And that was with Bridges going 3 of 8. The, you take away him and Gillespie hitting two for both of his. It's it's even worse. It's horrendous. Brunson, again, I will say Brunson basically bailed Villanova's butt out at the end. That's for damn sure. But again, 0 for 4 from deep. He, has, he hasn't hit a shot since January, I feel like. A deep shot anyway. He hit some clutch shots in overtime for sure. Then Phil Booth ice cold again. He two bad shooting nights, and yeah, he had a good return against the Paul. But like, come on, like, it, it, is it the hand? It can't be Russ. Now it's been three games. It, it's ridiculous. And then Spellman, yeah, he wasn't great offensively. And me and you were going back and forth with this during the game that he was playing an absolutely fantastic game defensively on Delgado. And I think his defensive game led to Delgado doing even worse than what he really was because he turned the ball over three times. And I think two of, at least two of them were frustration turnovers by just passing the ball when he really had a clear bath to the basket. But then even Gus Johnson pointed this out. Dante DiVincenzo, man, had it just absolutely collapsed at the end of the game. Collapsed. He collapsed with bad shot selections in, re- in regulation and then in overtime with the inbounds. And none was more apparent than on that five-second call if you were paying close attention on the Fox replay, you would see that, you know, Jay was saying like, oh, that's the quickest five seconds I ever have ever seen or whatever. But at the same time, like, dude, call a timeout if you don't think you can get the ball. And you, we had a timeout we, and we didn't use it the entire overtime. I didn't understand that. And yeah, I guess you can be like, oh, well, you know, Jay should have called it from the bench, but he's at the opposite end of the court. If Dante feels that he can't get the ball and he should be the one calling the timeout, not, not the bench. So... I don't understand what the lack of awareness was, the lack of urgency too. And I, I, I kind of want to pin it all on Dante, but at the same time I can't because it seemed like we were so delayed on running those inbounds plays. It seemed like Jalen was like waiting a little bit to set up and and the guys were setting up at half court. I'm like, dude, just move to the ball. And then on top of that, one thing that's been driving me crazy and it's been a theme over this sort of bad stretch we've been having was no one stops the ball on on, break, on fast breaks at all. It really didn't matter this much this game because I feel like Carrington really didn't do all that much, 7-19 from the field. But 
it seems like you know he's a slasher. Stop the ball. Someone stop the ball. Someone pick up the man. It's ridiculous. And and Dante's a big offender of that too. He just lets guys just drive right by him on fast break or just trying to get back on defense and transition. It's absolutely horrendous. What's concerning is it doesn't seem like anyone's gonna change. And if you're gonna get eaten alive by Kadeem Carrington, God knows what's gonna happen when you play some of the big boys in the tournament if you get that far, if you, you even get past the round of 32 at this point. It, you're gonna get eaten alive. There's got to be some some changes, uh, adjustments, something. In 15-16, there was that Oklahoma game that really kind of changed everything offensively. And I, I mean, yeah, they won, and I'm happy about it. But something's got to change a little bit, just a little bit. This is the best offense in the country, according to Kempom. So I'm not saying we should just tear it all down. But at the same time, it's, it's getting real frustrating when you're seeing your team hack up 36 shots, most of them bad shot selections. and to not adjust mid-game and just say, hey, go drive or something. When in reality, Jalen had to be the one saying, hey, this is my game. Let me take it. Let me take it to the rim. And he was able to hit some clutch shots because of it. Jalen Brunson was really struggling, and he was very frustrating to watch, and it just didn't help that he wasn't making any of his shots. You've seen him make a lot of the shots that he took before, but nothing was going down for him. Phil Booth took couple questionable threes that I didn't really like. But yeah, DiVincenzo wasn't that fantastic. But it's hard to just single him out when not a lot of people executed. But for me, I know you take it to the five seconds call. I was more livid at the lazy inbounds pass to Bridges that luckily was saved by Carrington getting a hand in there. And somehow, I, I didn't even think he did until maybe like the third look at the replay but he somehow Carrington got the got his hand in there and then knocked it out and because of that it was still Villanova ball and then after that there was it seemingly looked like another turnover but instead it was actually a foul on Aaron Gordon so that put Brunson to the line for the two game winning free throws in DiVincenzo's defense, I don't think there's ever been a quality inbounding game from Villanova. I don't know if that's something they practice because I felt like from watching this team over the years, you don't really get easy inbounds. Like it's it's an aspect of the game that you would think would be easy, but they they just don't have it. No, I still have nightmares of Dante Cunningham throwing a long inbounds pass against Pitt in the Elite Eight for whatever reason, and then Reggie Redding trying to save it underneath the basket. Or actually, no, it was Redding throwing the pass, and then I think Cunningham tried to save it under the basket, and then LeVance Fields being fouled at midcourt to tie the game. That always used to be one of the biggest gripes of mine growing up watching this team, but like when we got to college, I felt like that kind of subsided a little bit, but now it's it's reared its ugly head for sure. And it's funny too, like I kept saying throughout the game, like, damn, Seen Hall hasn't hit missed the free throw like all game, and then of course they're, they're bad free throw shooting comes to bite them in the butt with Carrington's big misses. And I think there, there was another big miss in there as well towards the end. And was, oh, oh, Delgado was missing some couple, uh, missed like one at the, in overtime. That was pretty huge. So I was just like, all right, good. That finally bit them in the butt. But you can't, you can't rely on teams missing free throws to, to pull out these type of victories. It's, it's getting out of control. And, and I, I, I just want to see some, some movement on offense, some cuts to the basket, someone driving. And me and my brother were talking about this during the game. It's, we're not saying to reinvent the wheel here, but it's kind of like in football. Like if you have a great passing game and like your run game is terrible, you still want to like run the ball every now and then to keep it respectable. The basketball equipment to be working inside a little bit, drive. Like maybe have Omari try a post move for once or have Eastman try a post move. Work it around a little bit. Let's let's try to, and then it, that would might free up the three point 
line, and then we're not taking such bad-looking shots. Yeah, when you're shooting 8 of 36, some adjustments that need to be made. And I think both teams were very thankful to have that overtime period because it helped them make their stat lines look a little better. Because until the closing minutes of regulation, both teams were shooting literally right around the 30% mark. I think Villanova was 30.4%, and then Seton Hall was 29.6%. So literally right there. And it just wasn't a pretty game. Whatever performance I said was the worst Villanova performance before, I was wrong. This was it. Last night was not a good one. But I give props to Mikael Bridges because I felt like he was the only one who showed up with those 23 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, 3 steals. I thought that he was just dialed in from the whole game, for the whole game pretty much, from opening tip. And he had some big baskets, especially in overtime. He he and Booth hit back-to-back threes. It was Booth's only three of the whole game. But it came at a nice time. It gave Villanova the lead, and from there they never gave it up. Over on the Seton Hall side, Kadeem Carrington, okay. We also need to we got we got lucky a few points here. One, Desi Rodriguez was not playing. So I guess in a way yeah. you probably were also thinking, why was this game as close as, as it was? Because it probably shouldn't have been. But right. two, Kadeem Carrington to the line for two free throws, has a chance to win the game. Makes both. Seton Hall probably wins, unless the Villanova answers. And based on that last play that they drew up, they were they were not gonna answer. He makes one and Seton Hall stays afloat. Or he misses both, and that would just be the devastating way for the senior to just choke it all at home. Fortunately, he bricked the first and made the second to keep things tied. But if he made both free throws, and the play that we drew up for the win was the exact same one that was used, in which instead of driving the ball to the basket, hopefully drawing a foul, we weren't even in the bonus until, like, what, like the final minute of the game when they decided to hack us and send us to the line? Yeah, they needed, like, four fouls to just get us into the bonus. Yeah, exactly. That weird cutting play where DiVincenzo has to go all the way back <laughs> beyond the arc to get the ball and then pop a three, yeah, that was not that was not pretty. And also, Kadeen Carrington is literally all about one thing. The drives inside of the basket, especially to his left, he's a lefty. Bridges had the block against Creighton last time to keep Villanova afloat. This time he goes for it, but fouls him. Luckily, he missed one of those free throws to just keep the game tied. But Carrington himself had a pretty solid game. 23 points, 7 rebounds, 7 assists. And Miles Powell, probably one of my favorite players to watch on this team, but he was nowhere to be found. And I think Villanova's defense was great. And yeah, a part of it could be that, oh, you know, Seton Hall just wasn't taking great shots or whatever. But I thought Villanova did a great job on Powell, holding him to only 5 of 19. And as we talked about before, Delgado, excellent job by Spellman to keep him quiet. And that's pretty much their core three because the core four was sitting on the bench or the fourth member of the core four was sitting on the bench in a boot. I'm happy Villanova was able to get away with it. That game last night, I didn't even sleep well. It's really hard to sleep well after being all amped up after a type of game like that. They kept saying throughout the broadcast, like, oh, this is like your typical Big East battle. And I was like, no, like typical Big East battles, like teams that are actually making shots. And there's like some like a hard foul in there to get both teams like drawn at each other. Kind of how like the Big East title game was in 2016. That, that was like a Big East battle. This was just the battle of the idiots, I felt like, between all the terrible shots and turnovers and stupidity on inbounds. And it was just, it was just a really bad game. I didn't think this was like a biggies battle. It was just terrible. 
And then Jay said after the game, he's like, oh, you know, we'd rather win like this in which we don't make our shots than when we make our shots. So I was like, no, no, no. Like, as a fan, I'd, I'd rather you guys, like, put up, like, 95, like, hitting, like, 10, 10 of 11 from deep and, you know, being really efficient and all that stuff. But I, I guess I guess if you want to take some silver linings into this, it's you won, and these are the type of games you're going to have to win in the tournament, all those cliches stuff. But at the same time, th- this is almost like a pattern here with the type of play they've been they've had and i really i really really hope it changes just play a little bit better and they got georgetown coming up this weekend so you won't really know if it changed that much because the georgetown's just not that good and then you got the biggies tournament so maybe we'll see some changes there but just be happy they i'm just happy they escaped and hopefully they're able to fix or what seems to be wrong with the offense and what seems to be wrong with the defense and they'll be able to fix it up for March. See, I actually didn't even think the defense was that bad, but the offense for the number one ranked team offensively, according to Ken yeah. Palm, yeah. did not look like the number one ranked team offensively, according to Ken Palm. Uh, it was just no. so sloppy, so sloppy. Right. Yeah, no, it was. But I- I'm not saying this game specifically. I'm just saying in general, this, this past, what, six, seven-game stretch with the three losses – feel that we've been exposed a little bit i think i feel like a lot of flaws have been have shown and i just want them to be corrected i i I will agree that the defense was pretty fine this game but i'm just saying in general i I feel like they got to just take a long look hard look at themselves and just say hey maybe we should fix abc and i i think they're capable of doing it they've done it before in the past but i don't like seeing this trend of where it's the same stuff game in and game out I will say, though, even though we did win in such a sloppy fashion, I'm just glad that we did not lose to Seton Hall. I, I've i told you before I that I just can't stand it. Can't stand it. I won't go to the Rock for a Seton Hall-Villanova game. I, I, I don't think I should be allowed, honestly. I, I would not take it well. Yeah, you've had uh, your fun at that, at that arena, that's for sure. It's always great to beat Seton Hall. We were able to hand Seton Hall an L in their national championship game. And their senior night, nonetheless. To that. And now we have an old rival to close out the regular season. The first game of March, Biggie's Tournament, Selection Sunday, NCAA Tournament, all just around the corner. But first, we have to play the Georgetown Hoyas back at home to close out the regular season. Ken Palm gives Nova a 96% chance to win, and he's predicting... A 20-point blowout for the Cats. I hope it's at least a 20-point blowout win. I don't think I can take uh, any more of these close overtime games. I mean, it's it's getting me battle-tested for March, that's for sure. But I would like a nice blowout to, to chill things out a little bit. And I know we have the Paul game sprinkled in there, but that feels like forever ago. But, yeah, Georgetown's coming up. Last time Villanova played Georgetown to close out the season at home was in 15-16. So rate of that. I know they closed out the season with Georgetown last year, but that was on the road. Georgetown's coming in, having lost their past three. They did have a little mini two-game win streak. They had beaten Seton Hall and Butler in back-to-back games, but then they just had a rough stretch at home, losing the Xavier Providence and Marquette in consecutive order. We know about their stars. You know about Jesse Govan, great center for Georgetown, but other than that, they don't really have much going for them. It's been a tough rebuilding year for Ewing, but it was pretty much expected. I think they're pretty much locked into as the eight seed in the Big East tournament. I, I don't know how the tiebreakers would work if St. John's or DePaul were to win uh, over the weekend. They might 
drop to nine or ten. Not exactly sure, but they're pretty they're pretty much locked in at eight. So they'll be on the other side of the bracket most likely. Thankfully, the regular season's almost over. I just want to get to the tournaments, and I want to I want to get to some real meaningful basketball. The last time Nova played Georgetown earlier this season, the Wildcats ran an absolute clinic on the Hoyas, and that was at the Verizon Center, or it's not even called the Verizon Center. Where it's I think it's the Capital One Arena now. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, so just imagine what Nova will do at home at the Wells Fargo Center. Granted, it wasn't a nice performance offensively for Nova, but I feel like being able to just go back home, finally putting an end to that crazy stretch of road games, probably do wonders for them. I don't see Villanova dropping this game at all. Georgetown, we talked about it before, but as you said, Jesse Govan is their main man, but also I'm going to give some props to Marcus Derrickson. This is such a front court heavy team. With Govan, as some people think that he might be a possible NBA draftee, maybe second round or at some point. Mark Sterickson is another tough interior forward. He stands in at six foot seven. He's a junior. And he has a little bit more range compared to Govan. And I feel like he's a little more tougher too when it comes to just doing the scrappy stuff. But Govan is clearly talented. I guess they both learned a lot from having Patrick Ewing as their head coach. Maybe learned a couple moves or two that the old big man used to use back in the day with the Knicks. And it's definitely done a lot for them. And I think it's something that John Thompson III wasn't able to do. Kind of unlock their potential and make them the forefront of the team or use them as such a fe- in such a featured role. And they're really thriving in it in the way that Ewing runs the system down there. I don't see Georgetown winning. I think Nova will close out the regular season with another win. And hopefully, very unlikely though, DePaul is able to pull off an upset of Xavier so that we can take the one seed in the Big East tournament due to tiebreaker rules and we'll get a share of the Big East regular season title, yada, yada. But yeah, I just don't see that happening. If it does, we need to take care of business against Georgetown, which I think we will. Certainly better. It was better not be another St. John's type performance where we just get caught off guard and end up losing to a really bad Big East team. Weekend, last home game of the year. I think they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. They'll close it out pretty handily. Yeah, the Hoyas are a team that are just so turnover prone, and that's just not going to work out against Villanova's press. So I think Nova should win fine, just okay. This game will tip off this Saturday at 5 p.m., you can watch it on Fox. It's the last regular season game of the year, and it's your last chance to watch the Cats at the Wells Fargo Center. So definitely go for that unless you plan on dishing out lots of dollars to chase them on their journey for hopefully another NCAA title. But we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yep. Just got to close out this week. And then next week, you got the Big East Tournament. And then next Sunday, Selection Sunday. I can't believe it's already here. Can't wait for that day. And get to fill out all the brackets and all. It's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. So while the biggest tournament is still not for another week, the ladies are actually getting ready for their biggest tournament in the Windy City of Chicago. And they open up play this Sunday against the Georgetown Hoyas in the quarterfinals of the biggest tournament. I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but the biggest conference announced some postseason accolades. And shout-outs to Alex Lewin for making the All-Big East second team and for Mary Gadeka to be an honorable mention, as well as win the Sixth Woman of the Year award. 
Shout-outs to the both of them and also to Harry Pareta for being the co-Big East Coach of the Year, sharing the honors with the Marquette head coach. Well-deserved for Coach Pareta, Alex Lewin, and Mary Gadeka. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you were looking at Villanova at the beginning of the year, you're kind of like, all right, maybe Lewin has a chance for some Big East accolades, and that was pretty much it. But the Sikadeka come off the bench, win six women of the year. That's that was a pretty big surprise. Just she just had an absolutely fantastic season. And then Coach Beretta to get co-coach of the year, sharing it with the coach who led her team to a Big East Conference championship. That's a pretty big accomplishment for the Villanova's longtime coach. Absolutely great to see. And you know. He, he's led Villanova to such a fantastic year so far. Hopefully they're able to keep it up in this uh, upcoming tournament. So the stage is set in the Trust Arena over in Chicago. All 10 Big East teams getting ready to duke it out for the women's basketball title. Looking at the bracket, we talked about it before. It was good that Villanova was able to get the three seed because they get to play DePaul as opposed to having Marquette on their side of the bracket. But just looking at it, you have Providence and Butler going down in the one of the playing games, and then Xavier and Seton Hall in the second playing game. Winner of Providence Butler goes on to play Marquette, while the winner of Xavier and Seton Hall goes on to play DePaul. This Georgetown-Villanova game, I will be honest, is probably a lot tougher than it seems. Georgetown overall is like a 500 team, sub-500. They're not that hot, but... It seems like both times that they've played Villanova, it's been extremely difficult to walk away with a win as the Wildcats have only won both games by one point each. And if you look at some of the postseason accolades, Georgetown has the Defensive Player of the Year in Deanna White, who is also a first-team All-Big East selection. And they also have one of the most improved players with Cynthia Petke. Chris, we got this. On a late Sunday tip-off over in Chicago on Sunday, do you think Villanova will pull it off? Do you think they can hold off the Hoyas for a third time this season? I don't know, man. This is, this is a really tough game to call. First, My first gut was like, yeah, they're going to win. They'll play DePaul, and maybe they can beat DePaul and play for the Big East t- uh, title. But, yeah, you examine these games a little closer. Only winning by one point both times, kind of by the skin of their teeth. You're like... I don't know. Maybe Georgetown might be a better team, not a better team than Villanova, but might just match up better against Villanova than most, and they can really pull one out. And I am a big believer in in teams not being able to beat other teams three times in a year, especially if you don't throw a loss in there. So to go undefeated three times, especially if it's a close talent level. So I'm really, I'm really hesitant to pick Villanova here. This is a really tricky game, and I and part of me thinks that they might overlook them and look at the Paul for the next game. But at the same time, I I do feel that Villanova on a neutral court will take care of business. I think I think they'll be fine. I think Coach Ferretta won't allow them to overlook this game. I think they'll be able to clamp down, and I think they'll be able to beat Georgetown stout defense and hopefully shoot the lights out and move on to the semifinals against uh, DePaul. Interestingly enough, Georgetown is actually the only team in the Big East that was able to knock off the two big-time favorites 
DePaul and Marquette. They split the series with the both of them, and no team has been able to do that. Little Nova came close by beating DePaul and having two really tough games against Marquette. But Georgetown was actually the only team to actually be able to beat both teams at least once this season. So even though Georgetown isn't exactly fantastic coming in with an even 14-14 record, a 9-9 record in the Big East, they have given Villanova some tough times. I just, oh, it's tough. It's tough because when you look at it a little more, you just see with the way that they've played Villanova twice this season. Both times were super close, and I don't think, you know, maybe the third time is a charm for them. But I don't think that Villanova, being on the mission that they're on, I don't think they're going to accept a first-round Big East tournament loss. So I have them beating the Hoyas and advancing to probably playing DePaul. Yeah, I hope you're right. I really do. And if you really want to look at big picture here, we've talked about it last episode, but we're pretty convinced that they they are safe for the NCAA tournament. But you don't want to take any chances. Take care of business against Georgetown. And if you play DePaul, you lose to DePaul. Okay. No harm, no failure. So it's uh, they they are sitting in good position, but just to be sure, lock down this game and they'll be they'll be in the tournament. The Wildcats' best shot at getting a win in this tournament would be against the Hoyas. Unfortunately for them, though, I just don't see this not being the Marquette versus the Paul showdown again. I don't think that they they'll be able to beat the Paul, especially in their home arena. Like why do the why do the Blue Demons get to host it? Why why don't why can't we have it at the Jake Nevin Fieldhouse or the Wells Fargo setting? I mean, I'd be all for it at Jake Nevin. That'd be pretty cool. Or Wells Fargo. I mean, whatever you want to do for seating and whatever. But yeah, that would be that'd be cool. But yeah, we we kind of hypothesized that whoever won the tournament last year kind of just gets it. it. It feels like in the past couple of years, I think that's the way it's played out. So maybe Villanova wins. Maybe they'll uh, be eligible to host. Maybe. But I will say, if they do beat DePaul, that would be a very good look for their resume. And if they make it to the finals, I would bet that they would play Marquette. I just don't see a reason why Marquette would not at least make the championship game. I have to agree with you there. So what are your picks for, for all the games? Just give a quick uh, rundown of how you see this playing out. Okay, so first round, we have Providence versus Butler to start off the Big East tournament. I have Butler winning. I think Tori Schickle and Whitney Jennings are just two dynamic players, and Providence has just been struggling. They're a little one-dimensional in relying just on Giovanna Nojic, who is one of the top scorers in the conference. But as we saw when Villanova played them, if you shut her down, that whole team will fall apart along with it. So I have Butler moving on to play Marquette. And then in the other playing game, you have Xavier versus Seton Hall. Xavier... I hate to say it, just isn't that good. So I have Seton Hall advancing, no problems there for them. Then to tip off the quarterfinals, you have Marquette versus Butler. I just don't see a reason why Marquette would not advance. They're just absolutely loaded with the Big East Player of the Year and Alizai Blockton. A couple of all Big East players like Erica Davenport also in the mix. You just can't discount the Golden Eagles at all. And I think they take care of business very easily and get a nice little warm-up game to start off the Big East tournament. The game after that will be very interesting. It's St. John's versus Creighton. St. John's has had some really good wins, but also some really head-scratching losses. On the other hand, Creighton, we beat them to basically secure the third spot, and they took the fourth. So they're going to bite the Marquette bullet for us. Creighton, though, they have some excellent talent with Audrey Faber. 
Jalen Magnew, both all Big East honorees. And then you have Sydney Lamberty, who was an honorable mention. I felt that she could have probably been a second team all Big East. But what do I know? I don't get to vote. I think Creighton should win just because they're just so much more deeper. They're so much more diverse. And, yeah, I guess going chalk. I guess we're going chalk so far. Chalk so far. Then in the third game, you have DePaul versus what would be Seton Hall. Seton Hall, I will say, has played their best basketball since their top player just decided to quit the team and didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore in January. But somehow they've been playing some pretty good basketball. Unfortunately, it's against DePaul. You're playing on DePaul's home arena. I give it to the Blue Demons. They probably take care of business easily. Then with Villanova-Georgetown to close out the night, I'm going with the Wildcats. I think they get at least one Big East tournament win. Anything else after that would be a bonus. Then in the semifinals, Final Four, Marquette versus Creighton. Creighton is good. Creighton's tough. They did actually beat Marquette in their previous meeting back in February, early February, beating them by one point. And they did it on the road, too, which was absolutely impressive. I don't think they can do it again. It just kind of seemed like uh, the, those games where everything was just going right for Creighton and Marquette couldn't say the same. So I have Marquette advancing to the Big East Tournament final. And then from there, DePaul-Villanova. I would love for Villanova to win. They do match up a lot better against DePaul, as we saw in their 30-point blowout win of the Blue Demons. But I just don't think the Wildcats will be able to do it on the Blue Demons' home court. So that'll set things up for a Marquette-DePaul Big East Tournament championship game. And I know everyone's been pretty much handing this title to Marquette even way before the season began. But that's not happening today. I think DePaul actually wins it on their home court and takes home the Big East Tournament title. Ah, so you go all chalk until the very end and get DePaul at home, basically, taking the title. Cool. Yep. That's how I see play now. Yep. And I pretty much have the same scenario with the exception being I'm going with St. John's over Creighton. That's the only difference. We'll be watching the Big East tournament live in Wintrust Arena. We will not be making the trip, but we will be watching with close intent on Fox Sports 2. And then the final four in the championship game will be on Fox Sports 1. We're hoping that the Cats do well. I think they'll at least win that first round game, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Once again, that game will be tipping off on Sunday, March 4th at 9.30 Eastern Time. So a little bit of a late tip-off. I also realized that that was Sunday. You know what? I'll stay up for them. I will stay up for them. We've, we've covered them this season. I will stay up for them. Anyways, it's that time of the day where we pop open the mailbag and answer your questions. As always, you can tweet us at S-O-N-N-Pod with your questions and anything you want us to discuss, and we will get to it and talk about it on the show or you can leave your questions in the comment section of a podcast thread and we'll get to those we only have one question today and it's from brendan riley and his question is since realignment villanova has lost to every team except DePaul, and DePaul has beaten every team except villanova look into your crystal balls and predict how many more seasons it will take for the blue demons to finally down the wildcats can we go with never? <laughs> I, I just I don't see it any time in the near future. I, I I really don't. I don't see Villanova losing at home to them, and so the only other time would be in Chicago. And yeah, I, I, no, 
maybe maybe next year if Villanova doesn't really uh, has a young team and it's just uh, just pretty much Phil Booth and Dante and JQ running around wild. Oh, and Spellman and Pascal. Oh no, they're fine. They'll be fine. No, they're not losing. They're not losing for a while. So according to the wonderful Sports Reference website, probably one of the best resources for any statistical needs in any sport, Villanova has not lost to DePaul since January 3rd, 2008. At that time, the Wildcats were ranked 17th in the nation, and it was on the road at DePaul, and the Blue Demons won 84-76. to Since then, it's been all Villanova. I don't even remember watching that game, that 07 08 game. That was, uh, I don't even remember that being a big deal at the time. I, I don't know. I, I, I feel that there was the whole 12 seed beating Clemson and then Siena against 316 by some stroke of luck. Kind of erased any DePaul memories, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a long time. <laughs> that is a real long time. And, uh, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I ho- hopefully it doesn't happen anytime soon. And then before that, DePaul won in 2007. But then if you're looking for the last DePaul victory before that, you're going to have to go all the way back to 1979. So, you know what? I'm going with, it's probably like, oh, man, what is it? I'm, I, I, I'm blanking on the exact number right now, but I don't know if you saw it. And I think like Pennywise comes out oh, like what every 31 years or whatever it is. It's going to be every 31 yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> every every 31 years, DePaul comes out for a victory and then just goes back into its hole, feasting on the misery of its fans. Uh, I just got an update. And my sources told me that it's actually 27, not 31. I was so, going to say 26, but yeah. So let's nice. see. They last won in 2008. So you add 27 to the equation, and that means... 2035. Yeah. That'll be the next DePaul victory, 2035. I will say, though, I feel like DePaul has just been doing this themselves, though. Just because every time there's a new head coaching search, they just seem to botch it. Like, they had the Hurleys in consideration with interest, and then they went with Dave Leto. Like, why? Why would you do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. And you, you, you would feel... At some point, you you would try and feel bad for DePaul, but at the same time, it's like you said, it's it's a very self-inflicted wound, and you're kind of just like, well, you you've done it to yourself, guys. Like, when will you live and learn how to fix it? But yeah, we we talked a bunch about that. Uh, was it was it last episode or a couple episodes ago? We we kind of ripped DePaul for poor coaching searches, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know if they'll ever get it under control there. Find the right guy. I mean, you got to figure. Eventually they will, and I hope for the Big East sake they do. But so right now, as we sit here in 2018, doesn't look good. Yeah, they have this wonderful basketball hotbed right in their backyard, and they can't own it. Then you have verbal commits from like seventh and eighth graders, and then when it looked like the future was bright with a four-star guard coming your way, top 100 recruit Tiger Campbell. He comes to his senses, wakes up one day, and just decides to. <laughs> Say, oh, JK, JK, uh, I'm actually not coming back. And then he said, oh, wait, wait, actually, you guys are one of my final schools that I'm considering. And then once he said that he was going to announce his school, he took an extra two days to finally make his decision after that. So he literally left DePaul hanging at the edge of his seat 
only to find out that he was still not, in fact, going there. Yeah, what a disaster. And it, it seems that some programs are just plagued like that. It always seems that they have some issue going on, and they just can never shake that bug. And Paul is uh, Paul is certainly one of them. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podomatic, or on Google Play. You have a lot of options. Also, don't forget to check back at viewhoops.com. We will have all your basketball and athletics needs. Please follow the site on social media at viewhoops. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at Repay 5 And you can follow me, Chris Stanziel, at The Stance Man on Twitter. Nova Nation, happy Thursday. Hope you all have a good weekend. It's already March. Can you believe it? March 1st. It's only a matter of time before we start filling out those brackets.